0: Psychodrama Podcast. I'm your co host, Katie Gordon.
1: And I am Leo Boadilla. Rhymes with the I'm going to start with that, I think, as, <laughs> as usual, always.
0: That's our new opening line.
1: <laughs> I think so.
0: Okay. Well, this podcast is pretty new. This is our second episode.
1: And uh, on our last episode, we decided to start, you know, light uh, by wading right into the culture wars and specifically how there are parallels between the cancel culture and comedy, perhaps, and also in the academia. And we talked a lot about uh, the case of the Sullivan case in Harvard uh, and him having to step down. And we introduced a little bit about Dave Chappelle's latest uh, Netflix specials and the controversies that surround his routines. And we started wondering about what the actual psychological science of humor have to say regarding prejudice. The, you know, are there any negative effects for the kind of jokes and that people may make? That is often a concern that people express regarding this type of humor is that by making fun of somebody or a group, you are further oppressing them. And given that our lens is to try to be, bring in science, I uh, was very lucky to have a former colleague at a previous university where I was, at a Western Carolina University, uh, Gold Catamounts, and he is a humor researcher, and uh, he was gracious enough to join us for this episode, and uh, he'll be talking about his research and hopefully shedding some light in, in this issue. So with that, welcome to Tom, Tom, Dr. Tom Ford at Western Carolina University. Thank you. Yes, glad to be here.
0: Thanks so much for for joining us, Tom. I think that all of us, I'm sure, have, have spoken to individuals who have felt the impact of humor in different ways at the workplace or in friend groups and social settings or just comedy or other culture they're consuming. But like Leo said, I'm really interested in learning more about what the research says on that, but I, I'm kind of curious, how did you get into studying
2: humor? Well, you know, I'm a social psychologist, and you know, social psychologists study the ways that people affect one another, uh, the way we affect one another's thoughts and behaviors and uh, feelings, and when I was in graduate school, <clears throat> I was interested in understanding and study, st- studying stereotypes and prejudice and the origins of prejudice and, and how prejudice uh, then affects the way we think about and Relate to one another in, in interpersonal settings and also in larger group contexts. And I, after I had graduated, it must have been at least a year, probably two years after I had graduated, I was uh, teaching a class on the psychology of prejudice at uh, Kalamazoo College, my first job out. And I, I was reading and, and studying this theory called aversive racism. It's a theory that describes how uh, white people's experience and expressions of prejudice has changed over the years, in part because of the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement made it not cool to have blatant prejudice mm. and, and uh, also to express it. And so people would begin concealing their, their, their prejudices and they, they began to disapprove of their own prejudices and, and, and mm-hmm. the prejudices of those around them. And so in this climate and the early 70s late 60s the experience of prejudice began to change and uh, I, I was reading this i'm reading about this uh, theory and and one of the things that really struck me was that the way that people address this aversive racism this new racism is when it doesn't feel like they're behaving in a prejudiced way and so they express mm-hmm. prejudice when the norms of a given situation are ambiguous or unclear so it doesn't look like or feel like they're doing anything wrong Maybe humor does this. Maybe okay. humor changes the rule.
1: And, and just to kind of summarize real quick what you are, are, is it what you're talking about, the aversive humor, and uh, is it very, versic- and that changes during the social, uh, during the civil rights movement? You're essentially differentiating between explicit racism versus kind of more implicit racism. Is kind of yeah. tied to those That's concepts. That's right. Got it.
2: You might make another distinction between, uh, yeah, the, the experience of racism being explicit versus implicit, but also. You know, the emotion and negativity that underlies the racism changed from you know, blatant animosity to more anxiety-related emotions of fear and disgust and things like that, emotions like that. And, and, and also, people had been developing, or during the course of civil rights, developing uh, queer egalitarian values. And this negativity, this underlying negativity, was conflicting with those values and it was usually suppressed, censored. Uh, because it conflicted with their you know, people's egalitarian values, and it could show itself if it didn't feel like it was violating those
1: values. So, is it, is it maybe like uh, people who may have uh, either a philosophical or religious tradition that you know ex- exalts equality or things like that, but then they hold these implicit, let's call it you know, racist beliefs or something, and they kind of the conflict in between that that finds uh, a release valve in humor. Is that more or less kind of the the the, the 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 outsiders understanding of it if i'm hearing that correctly
2: yeah so far yeah i would i would say that's a good uh,
1: summary thanks tom i, I was paying attention <laughs>
2: <laughs> i was thinking about when you i was kind of hesitant when you release Val because it, it seems like prejudice is completely unconscious and that it, it kind of sounded a little freudian uh, i'm not sure yeah. that yeah. That's exactly uh how that theory would characterize uh, prejudice is like this unconscious energy that's needs to be released but i think that when people when it's activated by a context you know negative feelings animosity i think people see it and say, hmm wait a second that's inconsistent with my egalitarian so i'm going to suppress that
1: got it so yeah there's yeah i see i see so there's a facilitating effect of a, of a, a signal in the environment it says it's okay to manifest that now because of that and then humor in a way, or humorous environments like a, like a stand-up show or something would then act as a, as a facilitator for that. And so it, it, one of the things that uh, we were wondering at as we were uh, finishing our last episode was, what does uh, either your data or any data that you know, uh, what does it say regarding actual effects, negative effects that it may have on people, on groups, and how long are these effects, how strong are stronger, the, the effect sizes, et cetera?
2: Well, you know, it, it, it seems that... Uh... Related to prejudice, researchers have asked a couple of really important questions. Does disparaging humor function as an initiator of prejudice? I and mean, does it make people more prejudiced than they were before? Uh, uh-huh. And then secondly, does it function as a releaser of prejudice? And that that's what we've been talking about so far. Well, early on in, in my uh, research in the early 2000s, you know, I addressed that first question. Does disparaging humor make people more prejudiced? And in my experiments, as well as others, experiments from other people's labs, you know, we would show participants different kinds of humor, you know, comedy skits, stand-up routines, or jokes. And then for some participants, the humor would disparage a social group, whether it be lawyers, women, gay people, etc. For other participants, the ones in a control condition, the humor would be neutral or and non-disparaging. Then participants would we would measure how much prejudice participants have toward the different social groups, the ones that we target with humor and ones that we did not. And we'd measure how quickly, how readily negative stereotypes would come to mind to look at accessibility, things like that. And collectively, the you know, research in my lab and elsewhere, I'm thinking mainly from Jim Olson in Canada, we found no evidence that exposure to disparaging humor affected people's stereotypes or attitudes toward a social group relative to non-humorous disparagement or neutral humor. Okay, so we didn't find evidence that watching, you know, uh, sexist or racist comedy skits would change people's attitudes. That would make people more racist or more sexist. And the way that I talk about it is that it didn't change, you know, stable knowledge structures of, of attitudes and stereotypes. Okay, but it's still possible that disparaging humor could change people's understanding of a social setting in ways that promote, as we said a moment ago, the expressions of existing prejudice. And, and that's where my research really began to, uh, focus its attention in the early, in, uh, 2004 or so. Uh, and so I developed a theory called prejudice norm theory with one of my old graduate students, Mark Ferguson. And we propose that disparagement humor can affect how people understand the rules of appropriate conduct in a given setting uh, in a way that frees them up to express or release uh, their prejudice, the existing prejudice against the targeted group. And our research, we would show people, again, like uh, sexist uh, comedy skits, joke, stand-up routines, things like this, or are neutral, or we would take the, the humor out of the uh, routines or jokes, and present the sentiments in a serious manner, so that we would have serious uh, disparagement conditions as well. And we would then give people opportunities to brush prejudice. Yeah, so we expose them to, or, or make them watch these uh, these comedy routines or read these jokes under the guy And there's some, some cover story. And so we have some reason for that. Maybe we're interested in determining what people find is funny and not funny, etc. Then we give them a completely separate experiment in which the university is asking for our help to get student input on how budget cuts to student organizations should be allocated. And then um, we would ask students, we would give students budgets for all these student organizations, and we'd ask them to cut the budget the total budget across the organizations by a given percentage. And then we would measure the percentage of budget cuts toward the women's student organization relative to the others. And we found that uh, upon exposure to sexist humor in these various types, jokes, comedy skits and routines, etc., some men allocated greater budget cuts to the women's organization relative to the others. And those men were men who were high in sexism, antagonism toward women.
1: And yep. so, yeah, so just so so, the men who had higher self-reported antagonism yeah. towards women, then they would be more as, – as they facilitated the humor, then they would allocate less resources, thus uh, showing that uh, humor then facilitated or normed uh, the sexist behavior, if you That's
2: will. exactly right. And Got you know, it. Sex would go away in, in the neutral humor conditions. The, the, the sexist men would behave just like the non-sexist men, and they would allocate a roughly even – Amount of budget cut to the, uh, women's organization as to the other student organization. And so in the absence of the sexist humor, the sexist men were concealing or suppressing their prejudices, their antagonists. But in the context of the sexist humor, they felt freer to express their, uh, prejudice in, in whatever way was available, it happened to be the budget cut that we gave them. That budget cut task was, was a way to, uh, that we made available for them to
1: express their prejudice. And and they did. That's really interesting. And just a quick side note, we'll, we'll edit in and out here in a second. But I think we're hearing some kind of uh, tapping or something. And I think it may have been on your end. Just to, to be mindful, it's picking up a little bit of that. Okay. But other than that, it's it's, it's great. This is it's fantastic. So okay. thank you so much. And uh, so now I'm going to just go ahead and make it. Uh, Katie, let's make a note. Uh, Banana bing bong or something, whatever it is. To, <laughs> <laughs> to
0: I cut I, this part out. I wrote down the the timestamp, but I like banana bing bong better. Okay, that's I'm
1: going with. <laughs> Actually, okay. I'm gonna
0: leave that in. I have, a, I have a I have a question. Unless there's anything else you wanna. Uh,
1: so please go ahead.
0: I'm sorry, I accidentally muted myself. Um.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think Leo muted me after hearing about that sexist joke. Actually. <laughs> um. <laughs> So so my question is one of the <laughs> things that's that's really interesting about that is the idea one way that would be overly simplistic so i'm asking you to to to, to correct me and give me a more accurate understanding is the idea that everyone's kind of sexist but one group is working harder to suppress it and under certain conditions they don't suppress it but people do vary in how much sexism they have right it's not just everyone has the same sexism but they also have Values that can temper that
2: yeah, that's yeah I would our, our measure of sexism picks up the degree to which people have antagonism and we use uh, a Measure called the ambivalent sexism inventory by Peter Glick and Susan Fiss from uh, 1996 and it, it measures two kinds of sexism one is benevolent sexism and the other is hostile sexism
1: and and oh. And yeah, would you mind explaining a little bit what those those differentiation within this? That'd be great.
2: Hostile sexism is the traditional antagonism that we think about. You know, it's the it, it's you know men hating feminists, hating women, uh, feeling that women are pushing too hard to you know, get into places where they don't belong, so to speak, and men resenting women for one reason or another or not liking them. So antagonism, antipathy toward women. Uh, benevolent sexism uh, is a is a different completely different kind of attitude it's an idealization of women particularly women in subservient traditional gender role uh, women as housewives as mothers yeah so it's a there's some chauvinism that seems to come through in this benevolent sexism but it's not such it's not an antagonism based like the hostile sexism is and the sexism that we measure in our studies is that hostile sexism. We find that men who have got hostile sexism, they seem to be vulnerable to the uh, prejudice-releasing effects of sexist humor. We, we also found that, uh, and, and other research has shown that sexist humor seems to expand the bounds of acceptable conduct to include other kinds of expressions of sexism, like tolerance of gender harassment, Acceptance of rape myths. Uh, some researchers have shown that, that sexist men, men high in hostile sexism, or even express greater willingness to rape a woman upon yeah. such as humor. And finally, uh, acceptance of societal uh, inequalities. And the way I think about this is, you know, the social norms that, uh, about what's acceptable and, and unacceptable conduct is sort of like a rubber band. Everything on the inside of that rubber band is acceptable ways of responding. Everything on the outside is unacceptable. Well, the humor, the sexist humor expands, it stretches that rubber band, it expands the bounds of, of normative conduct to include things that would be otherwise seen as, as, as unacceptable.
0: I appreciate you your research on this because I certainly have been in situations where I've heard people make kind of jokes like you're saying that are about things like harassment and it's kind of framed as it's just a joke. And then I feel in a weird position where like, you know, I want to I wanna respond and speak out against this, but also there's this idea that, you know, that's falling to the stereotype of the humorless feminist or something like that. And I think those dynamics are difficult. So it is interesting to hear that those jokes actually do have meaningful effects. It's not just manner of not having a good sense of humor if you don't laugh or you're bothered by those things.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I guess I'm tying this up a lot in my in my area, kind of just the, the general aggression and the sexual aggression literature. Um, you see a lot of people who kind of hold hostile attitudes towards women and they, they definitely have more acceptance of rape myths and definitely more, um, they acknowledge more willingness or have engaged in more actual sexual violence. So what I'm wondering is how much, how much is it that people who already hold those attitudes kind of gravitate towards, to, towards that humor versus the effect that this humor can have in facilitating sexism on, on the average person?
2: The question about whether uh, you know, people who are higher in house sexism gravitate to uh, yeah, sexist humor in day-to-day life, I think is a good one. Um, and I, I don't have an answer to that. I suspect that, that they would. And what I do know is that there's literature showing that people who have got prejudice attitudes in general, they tend to enjoy humor that, that disparages the the group for whom they have prejudice more than people who don't have. Mm. If I dislike people from, from Portland, I'm going to enjoy jokes (laughs) more than people who have affection for Portland. You
1: love the show Portlandia.
2: So I would suspect that the, uh, sexist men would be less bothered, uh, less easily offended by sexist humor, more uh, amused, more entertained, and therefore they're more likely to consume it
1: in the future. You talk a lot about sexist humor and how a lot of your research has been based, uh, focused on that. One of the things we're wondering is, are there any uh, similarities or differences between different types of humors so of sexist versus racist uh, versus ageist. Uh, or, transphobic, humor, or transphobic, which we were talking about yeah. last time. That's right, that's right.
2: Regarding uh, other groups, you know what we found is that uh, disparagement humor uh, can, I guess, increase the, the, the acceptability of expressions of prejudice for some groups, but not all groups. Not all groups are equally vulnerable to these prejudice-releasing effects that we're finding the mm. And the way I think about this is from uh, Crandall, Ferguson and Bond's 2013 Normative Window Model of Prejudice. And let me just, I'm going to uh, summarize it badly.
1: Uh, <laughs> That's okay. That's basically the, the motto of our podcast. <laughs> we'll edit that out, please. Kate.
2: <laughs> I like it. Think about prejudice in, in terms of three windows. Think about three windows that are adjacent to one another. And the left window is called the justified prejudice window. And behind that window, you would see groups like terrorists and racists, bullies, kids that steal lunch money. And, and, and those groups are socially defined as bad. They're deviant. And if there's a, there's social, uh, that definition is socially accepted. And negative attitudes towards those groups, are condoned and they're justified. So hatred and dislike and mistreatment of those groups would be justified. And so the prejudice, the negativity that we have toward those groups is is justified prejudice. And there's consensus behind that sentiment, that norm of justified prejudice. Now think about the rightmost window. And The rightmost window is the unjustified prejudice window. And behind that, uh window would be farmers and firefighters and clinical psychologists.
1: These are <laughs> <laughs> virtuous groups, like clinical psychologists.
2: <laughs> they're righteous groups. They're, they're good. They're good people. Negative attitudes towards those people would be weird. It would be wrong. You would be a bad person if those groups. And so prejudice would be completely unjustified and that the, this norm of unjustified prejudice is consensual, and so, so it's also stable. Now, the interesting group is, the interesting window is the one in the middle, and I refer to that as the shifting acceptability window. And here we have groups that are socially defined as, they're not deviant, but they're not righteous either. They're defined as disadvantaged, vulnerable to social injustice. They would be groups like Feminist women, religious minorities, racial minorities, little gay people would be in that window. Think about all of those, all of those groups: women, racial minorities, uh, religious minorities, gay people, sexual minorities more generally. What window were they once in, and you know, what region were they once
1: in? They were in the far left before they kind of moved. Are you saying that they moved from the justified to yeah. to the middle window? Yeah, social movements
2: change the normative standards for how we think about those groups of people and discrimination against them. So social movements, in a sense, act like a big hand that pushes them from that justified prejudice window toward the unjustified. But in the meantime, they're in this shifting acceptability region in society. Now there are growing norms that negative attitudes, uh, toward those groups is wrong. Increasingly growing norms that prejudice is, is toward them is wrong, but the norm of this emerging norm of unjustified prejudice is not consensual. There's, so that means the norm is not stable. Our research shows that uh, disparagement humor has a prejudice-releasing effect on groups in general that are in this middle region, this shifting acceptability window. So we find the same effects of uh, sexist humor on women as we do anti-Muslim humor on Muslims, anti-gay humor on uh, gay men. So all three of those groups, I mean, the humor functions in nearly exactly the same way compared to uh, neutral humor or non-humorous content.
1: So it, it sounds like there's a there's a big role for social movement. So for, as you the parallel that you make, so in the civil rights era, kind of, there's a movement towards uh not being making things acceptable there's this kind of second wave that the social movement that is also pushing other group away from the kind of justified window onto perhaps the unjustified and the 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 kind of the the shift that we're seeing currently is where we see a lot of the um i guess perhaps a a lot of the storm and stress in society regarding it
2: there are people who who are not completely on board with the emerging unjustified prejudice norms and those people if they express their true selves, their, their true animosity, they're going to get censored. They're going to get punished somehow. So they, they, they adapt by concealing, by suppressing.
0: That's really interesting, and that framework helps me to understand this. So thank you for explaining that. I'm, I'm wondering then if comedians are invited onto campus and they're making sexist, racist, transphobic, homophobic humor, and people are saying that's contributing to an environment that is worse for us because it might increase bigoted behavior. Are you saying there, there's some evidence that that can be the case?
2: Yeah, I am. I, I would The way that you put that, I would say, yeah, I think there is some evidence to suggest that that could happen
1: but we and and, and the, i think because we you know this being a psychology program, so there's the nuance of that is that we still don't quite know yet exactly how large or how long long lasting the effects might be and who it might affect the most versus not etc that's true that's true And and
0: also that this, um, the psychological aspect and what you're saying is a very important factor. But of course, when the decisions are made, there are also other factors about free expression and free speech. But what we're trying to do with this show and and add some nuance to different people's point of views, and I think that sometimes that point of view, for example, if it's expressed by college students who are concerned that their campus environment isn't going to be as positive as it was or that their environment will suffer, sometimes those are too readily dismissed when it sounds like we don't know a lot, but what we do know suggests that it's possible that it could have a negative impact on a climate of a university for example.
1: Yeah, right. It's really interesting because one of the things that we've um, uh, grappled, or when Katie and I talk, it is kind of that uh, you know, where do you strike that balance between things like academic freedom and just general freedom of speech, and also ideals such as making a society a much more welcoming and safe environment for all. Um, and so, I, I don't know if I have a question, but uh, or maybe you have a Because it's hard to, at some point we kind of have an opinion. So I'm wondering if based on your research, based on your background and in your, in academia in Western Carolina is kind of in a, in in the mountains of North Carolina, a little bit of a more conservative area. We, Katie and I have always talked about the the very different environments in our campuses. So I'm curious as to whether you have, you know, opinions, what your thoughts are regarding the whole, um, the concerns that are raised in both sides. And, uh, yeah, your take on it.
2: I do. Uh, and the way I would frame that conversation is in terms of humor ethics. And uh, and I, I think about humor ethics. I, mm. I My research has implications for how I think about humor ethics. And I, I can talk a little bit about that. Now, I also I think of humor ethics as being somewhat context dependent. And the general discussion that I see on the Internet tends to rely or tends to center around uh, what comedians as you mentioned on college campuses, can say and can't say, and what they get uh, lasted for or not. I mean, are they going to get canceled from this award show or that because of what they said three years ago? Those are the kinds of uh, contexts that I, I tend to see this, this issue of humor ethics. To me, the issue cent- seems to center around the offensiveness potential of, of a, a comedian's humor. You know, when does disparaging humor cross this line? and become offensive enough to be considered wrong. And in my opinion, based on looking at um, news articles and research and also essays and philosophy, it seems that the answer depends on uh, a few variables, really five five variables. You know, the severity of the of the mockery, the strength of the punch, in other words. Second, the compassion yeah. that we have for the target of the humor. Intentions of the humorist, status of the humorist, social category, relative to the target, and then also the context of the humor. Now, so now the I, the idea is that that what I'm picking up is that people intuitively or implicitly they work some, these variables into an equation to some degree, come up with an answer of what is too offensive, what has crossed the line and has become wrong. Now, I think that comedians uh, they, they tend to they tend to take things that are aggravating, unfair, upsetting in society, inequalities and something. They, they want to make people laugh at those things. And I think the closer they get to that boundary of uh, uh, that that line of becoming wrong, I, I think the, the better the humor oftentimes. So I think they kind of flirt with that that line getting close to but not crossing the line. Right. And I think that they recognize that there's going to be some collateral damage. That somebody, yeah, there will be some people that get a little offended or hurt by remarks uh, that they make in, in humor. Uh, whatever it might be, there's going to be some collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And the question for them is well, when does it become too much? When does it cross the line and become wrong? My research adds to this conversation uh, by saying that offensiveness potential is not the only thing that we should consider. You know, as Katie was mentioning, we should be considering these possible downstream consequences beyond the immediate context of the humor. Well, there could be consequences for campus culture, as Katie was talking about. These These downstream consequences have nothing to do with the offensiveness at the moment in the given context. So I think my research adds another variable to consider when thinking about
1: uh, humor ethics. Yeah, and I actually I, I think that is probably the first time that I've heard the you know the term humor ethics, and it's really interesting. It's very it gives, definitely gives a lot of food for thought. Uh, it does. I I
0: really. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry. sorry go Leo. Ahead
1: yeah. No no. Please go ahead. I I, I do I, that to you all the time. So it's it's about time. <laughs> and equality here at, at Psychodrama. drama.
0: <laughs> it's all happening right now.
1: <laughs> As we speak. <laughs>
0: Well, I I just really appreciate that humor ethics framework because, as, as Leo and I were talking about in the first part of this, comedy is very important. And, in fact, I want to talk about some of the positive value that comes through that. But there are also these other very important issues to consider, too. And it's no wonder that there are controversies surrounding this stuff.
1: Right. Yeah, I also really like kind of how you described that um, there the, the, the seems to like going like like almost people are doing a calculus in their head. So the comedian is doing a calculus in his head. It's like, OK, so how much punch can I put in? How much What's the severity? How much compassion? How, as, as a person crafts the joke, how is it, it going to land on, you know, on the majority and the average person? And at the same time, they have to read the room or the. Society in general to figure out okay how is this going to, is it going to has, how is it going to be taken and to me what I I always always wonder is um you know who are the comedians that do that and I would like to believe that the comedians that rise to the top are the ones that are really adept at doing that but it also seems to me like a lot of comedians that rise to the top are the ones that kind of just pander rather than kind of push those edges and. To be fair, that's kind of kind of the comedy that I kind of tend to prefer.
0: Pander, do you mind saying more about that Leo Pander to Yeah,
1: who? I mean, I I, I don't want to call out names, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or 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 uh, gosh, what's the name of the the guy who is from the guy who hosts the, uh, the late night show? Which, what? Um, he, the, he was on SNL, and
0: uh, he oh. plays with the
1: Roots. He has the Roots as, as his as his house band.
0: Oh, Jimmy Fallon.
1: Jimmy Fallon, right? So like. Those are, you know, that's kind of like the clean comedian, like you know, you're you're aiming for kind of the average, kind of the bland, what I consider kind of blander jokes, as opposed to a little bit more edgy. And I think that that's an, to me, I imagine it's an interesting area of research to be the people who, the individual differences, the people who kind of tend to enjoy a certain type of humor and gravitate towards it, and who's going to be more likely to be open to to be joked, even their own within their own group. So. Mm-hmm the 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 role of individual differences but I, I, again i really do like the um the whole idea about ethics and we consider that yes we have unlimited freedom of speech and we would like to exercise it in a way that is judicious because there are it's not like just yelling at the wind words can and do have an effect so it's very 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 interesting
0: it really is and i think that another part of why we like humor so much is because it seems like it can do kind of the the opposite of what we're talking about, which is some yeah. people can use humor to cope with prejudicial stress. And I was wondering what your thoughts are, if you had research about people using comedy in that way to actually relieve stress.
1: That's really interesting, and I, it actually ties a little bit to a question that I I had related to uh, gallows humor, um, because in in there's I've been dealing with. Um, Well, not dealing. I've been going through some of the literature on burnout for a grant that I was working on. And uh, one of the, we were looking at law enforcement uh, officials, and one of the uh, papers was talking about the use of gallows humor as a coping mechanism and the effects of, you know, does gallows humor get, which is very common in a lot of prof- professions in which yeah. there is high rates of burnout, so nursing medicine and all that. And it was interesting, and I don't know if you know any of that literature, the one paper I ran into was investigators who looked at uh, child abuse cases, which are hard, hard cases to look at. And the relationship um, to of humor, it's a little bit kind of what you're alluding to is that, there's a certain type of humor that is actually uh, palliative and it has a positive effect. So people who like to joke around uh lightly, lightheartedly at work and mm-hmm. do kind of more uh, lighthearted humor versus people who actually engage in gallows humor, they tend to have worse outcome and more related to burnout com- compared to the other type of humor.
2: Yeah, and I see the gallows humor as self-enhancing. It's in, in the sense that the stressors that are that weigh so much, that uh, that are so difficult to deal with in the case of, you know, working with child abuse cases, or if you're an ambulance crew person or a police officer, I mean, the kinds of stressors can be very difficult to bear. I think that humor, humor in general, trivializes and makes light of, of, of a topic. And the humor that makes light of and trivializes the stressors that you're under tends to, tends to make them more manageable. It's a, it's a, It's a way, it's coping because it's a way to make those stressors smaller, the moment, or making the stressors less. That's what trivializing is. I mean, it's making something less. Gallows humor is self-enhancing in the sense that it's an effective way of coping with stressors that that weigh people down so much.
0: Along those lines, I was wondering, does your research suggest that self-deprecating humor can make things worse?
2: Yeah, that is a good question. Uh, I have uh, research showing that uh, self-defeating humor, self-deprecating humor, can it does not function like self-enhancing humor. In one study, I gave students, well, I told students that they would be taking a really difficult math test. That made people very anxious. And then, while anticipating taking this math test, I gave them instances of self-enhancing humor, humor that would... Make the math test less, make it small. So these were jokes about math, and they were jokes about math tests, and they came in the form of memes and written jokes. And like, yeah, okay, so memes and written jokes. And then
1: another. Wait, we we gotta hear we gotta hear at least one math joke. Uh, oh, what's the difference
2: between a PhD in mathematics and a large pizza?
1: Something about pie, but I don't know why. <laughs> no,
2: a large pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As non-math people, are we allowed to laugh at that though? Across that the humor ethic line?
1: I'm I'm offended that he didn't use <laughs> pi somehow. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So please continue.
2: Yeah, or we would give people these memes and jokes that that, that belittled themselves in terms of math ability, like somebody wasn't able to figure out a tip, how to calculate a uh, you know 10% tip, you know, and they'd be I'm so bad in math that, and then you fill in the blank or something humorous. And so they, they got humor that was sort of self-defeating or self-enhancing. And then they repeated the humor and they grasped, that is they, they presented this humor to somebody else. So they read the humor and they also engaged in it. And the people who engaged in the self-enhancing humor had less anxiety associated with the math test. Than people who engaged in the self-defeating humor or no humor at all. So the self-enhancing was was effective at dealing with the stressor, at making it less, but the self-defeating wasn't.
1: Uh, so Tom, um, earlier you were talking about uh, uh, sexism and sexist humor, and one of the things that came came uh, to You talk about um, benign versus kind of more malign humor, if you will, more explicit. Uh, um. Antagonistic attitudes towards women versus the other one that tends to be just chauvinistic, um, kind of male-oriented, but not necessarily antagonistic. What it got me wondering about was: uh, Is there? Um, have you, have you, have you guys studied, or has anybody looked at something like covert sexism and how I think about it from in area, from my area? There seems to be this increased focus on uh, what is called, you know, quote unquote, nice guys, uh, or kind of the incel movement, who are these men who think of themselves very highly, they tend to be kind of very narcissistic, that they, they think that they deserve women, that women should, you know, pay a lot of attention to them, but for whatever reason, they do not get that attention, and they carry around this reservoir of just untapped anger towards women and when they first present to themselves to women either like and it's usually you see this in in communications online so in tinder or something people are posting on different forums um you know how they get uh, a person who approaches them and they're like hey you look great i'm a nice guy I, you know i'll treat you well and the person well thank you i'm not interested i have a boyfriend and immediately they just explode then oh i never wanted you whatever and just call the person names what it got me wondering was whether there was something you, you had people who came in or come into the lab in which they, in, in an air, in a measure of sexism, they may rate low, but oh. then they act very sexist after there's facilitation of that. Or if you cover, or, or if you have a measure of defensiveness that you kind of co-vary in order to look at something like that.
2: My research, I think, is, speaks to those uh, questions. I'm not sure that'll answer directly. We found that men who are who have these precarious manhood beliefs, men, yeah, men who who uh, view manhood as not something that's inherent, but something that has to be proved. And it has to be proved in, in a sense over and over. And you, could, you can have uh, threats to your to your masculinity that come in the form of behaving in gender-inconsistent ways. So if a maybe a man cries at a movie, then you know, that would be gender-inconsistent. That would certainly be inconsistent with masculinity. And so their masculinity might be threatened as a result. And what we found is that Men who, who tend to view masculinity in this sort of fluid manner have uh, they have precarious manhood beliefs. Well, when we threaten their masculinity, they enjoy and they express sexist humor more, and they enjoy and express uh, anti-gay humor more. But not other forms of disparaging humor, not disparaging humor that targets other groups and that shift in acceptability window, just uh, women and gay men. We believe that that's because. The humor that uh, targets women and gay men lampoons, it targets the very things that, that they want to disprove about themselves. The, they want to affirm their masculinity and by denigrating anything that seems inconsistent with traditional views of masculinity.
1: So, wow. So it's kind of like a, this very vulnerable version of masculinity, per se, and then any time that they have to kind of prove it by putting down a group that may not, that doesn't fit masculinity, then it, it, it self-enhances their fragile masculinity, if you want to put it that way. Well, right. And we have found
2: that uh, people, that that, that, ex, that that does happen, that, that it really does serve sort of function, that um, threaten masculinity and it rebounds the... Uh, I guess affirmation of masculinity rebounds after they express anti gay jokes or sexist jokes, but not anti Muslim uh, jokes or lawyer jokes, etc.
1: Wow, that's, yeah, so the, a very specific kind of way in which, yeah, a very specific type of humor that it is, there's a very specific, um, purpose, if you will.
2: Exactly. And so related to the nice guys that you're talking about, I mean, it could be that, yeah, you're right. Maybe they are kind of low on uh, overt sexism measures, but maybe they're also high on Carrie's manhood beliefs. And and when masculinity is threatened by a rejection, oh, I don't want to go out with whatever it might be, well, then uh, they would need to repair their vulnerable, threatened masculinity. And humor. Yeah. There's one tool, it's one mechanism for doing that. According
1: going our research. So the other question that I I, that I just kind of thought about was, I, as you were talking about humor ethics, do you, Tom, do you have like a particular comedian or what kind of humor do you tend to like? Of course, right after I, I, I trashed Jerry Seinfeld and Jimmy Fallon, watch him say Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> and Jimmy Fallon. But, <laughs> but do you have a favorite comedian or somebody who kind of embodies that ability to kind of read the room, kind of stretch the... Stretch the, the rubber band a little bit to kind of just make people think, but not necessarily expand it so much that it's harmful. I don't know if that makes any yeah, sense.
2: I do. Uh, Neil Brennan, he's a comedy writer and performer.
0: He used to write for the Chappelle Show, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he co-created the show.
1: show. Oh, yeah. He actually, I heard him recently. He was talking about his father, who was a. I, I heard him on on a podcast on Snap. Stop yeah. judgment, I think. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was that he's that he was a raging narcissist or something like that?" Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But Neil, Neil Brennan and I have actually had conversations about uh, about this this line of, of too far, what's considered wrong, uh, and and I've talked with him about uh, he and I have just been back and forth uh, about what we're calling humor ethics and uh, this what are the variables that that you need to consider from a professional's standpoint as well as day-to-day standpoint, and so he and I have had some a bit of discussion about these things, and I know that he's someone who does this sort of mental calculus that you mentioned about uh, you know sort of thinking about well okay where is that uh, that line likely to be you know how severe can the mockery be depending upon the amount of compassion for the for the target engenders and, and and so on and. So I, I like him a lot. I think he, he does a really good job of what what I really like about him. And, and as well, Jerry Seinfeld, they both do this. They take aggravating things, irritating things in life, and they find ways to make people laugh at them. And usually they're kind of mundane things. Jerry does that really well. He finds mundane things and, and he somehow is just a genius at making people find humor in them. Like, pick somebody who stands too close when they're talking to you or you know think <laughs> that and so i think neil brennan is is uh, one of my favorites right now uh, kevin hart i think is hilarious uh, part of kevin yeah. hart there is just his delivery he could say anything i think and i would find it funny for some reason
1: a lot of people do netflix certainly does seem to think uh he's definitely worth it so there you go
2: yeah oh yeah i but yeah, I'd say I've always liked Seinfeld because of that that sort of uh, cleverness and finding in making the mundane slight irritants seem uh, exaggerated and hilarious.
1: Yeah, well, I take it back. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Whoopsies. Go no, memo to self. You know, make sure you don't insult our guests before you know. I'm over.
2: I don't. I don't mind, Leo. If you don't find his humor.
1: Yeah. So what you're saying is that you have a direct line to Dave Chappelle, and he will be retweeting our show <laughs> in, in in short in short notice here. Okay. Excellent.
0: I do think that's incredible that uh, with Neil Brennan, um, he's talked quite a bit about his experiences with depression. Is yeah. that, that right? And including, I believe I saw one of his Netflix specials, and I think that he, it's interesting to hear from the behind-the-scenes conversations that you're saying about how thoughtful he is about talking about depression, which is something that is not funny, but then putting it into a comedic context and, and helping people to laugh about it and cope through that. So that that's really cool that you've had these ongoing discussions. Yeah, you're
2: there. right. It's, it's been really cool. I've, I've really enjoyed it.
0: If you don't mind me asking, what are what do you usually talk to Neil Brennan, or what's the context of
2: that? We talk about really just about the things we've, we've been discussing, uh, and he is, uh, I think, deeply interested in understanding comedy in this age of social justice, and you know, this is something that he talks with his friends about, and his friends are Kevin Hart and Chris Rock and you know other big time comedians. So these are conversations that these people are having. And, and so he wanted to, I guess, reach out and, and hear what some what some egghead in the, in the ivory tower and <laughs> to say about this. Yeah. And so he had learned about my research, and he asked me to, to send him a few articles, and I did. And, and then I asked him to come visit my class by Skype. Oh, I, cool. Oh, my gosh. And uh, psychology of
1: humor, and he did.
0: They must have
1: loved that. Yeah, fantastic. We really, we really appreciate your time, Tom. This is, this has been a lot of fun, and it's exactly kind of what I was hoping it would be like. Yeah,
0: well, absolutely. Thank
1: you, that. Yeah, no, of course it was perfect. I was like, I've been playing with that. We've been playing the idea of a podcast for a while, and I was actually listening. You know what? Oh, I was uh, reading a review of. Um, Adam Sandler's, whom I loved when I was in college, like, you know, every college, you know, every 18, 19 year old, I thought Adam Sandler was hilarious. Yeah. The older I got, I was like, OK, maybe not that funny anymore. But he the, uh, uh, a profile of him in The New York Times came out with, with because of his new movie. And like many that's a, another I guess maybe we could talk about that is a lot of comedians kind of have they're very, very good comedians or comedians that are prominent, They also kind of are able to tap into very dramatic roles really well. Mm-hmm. And he's getting really good reviews for that movie. That's uh, do you, you know what it's called, Katie? They want it's uh, that he said he's a diamond dealer. Uncut gems. This, uncut gems, indeed. But so sort of like Jim Carrey kind of did this a couple. You know, he he did the um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and he got rave reviews for that. And also, um, God, what's the guy? The, the guy from SNL. Uh, oh. Will Ferrell okay. when he did a dramatic role as well I think and definitely Adam Sandler when he did uh, Punch Drunk Love and then he's getting rave reviews for this so one do, do you there's that belief that there's every comedian that kind of has that in, in, inside anger and definitely the comedians that I can tend to like a lot are the ones that kind of seem to just kind of have an over-controlled hostility just <laughs> ready to explode <laughs> on, on stage. Yeah. So that's when, and that's that's really when we, when uh, after I, I read the review and kind of how he is as a person in the profile, I basically had just kind of this explosion of uh, of ideas, and I just texted Katie that sorry, I was like, this is gonna be our podcast, and mm-hmm. just oh, basically, and it was gonna be nothing. Honestly, it was gonna be about comedy, but Katie, good for, good for her, had the good sense <laughs> of saying like, we okay, listen, I don't think that people want to hear a long exposition on Don Rickles. Uh, <laughs> in the 1930s so okay. let's let's wrap it up because I, I really had a whole a whole series on mel brooks and his genius yeah. uh and uh so it's like maybe we can expand it more in the society in general and uh, but i was like but the, the idea of maybe starting with comedy and then it was you know, like i have the perfect guest and, and we thought immediately thought about you oh okay, okay. yeah that was great but yeah thank you so much Tommy this is this has been yes, fantastic Thank you. all right thank you nice we promise, we promise not to edit it in ways that make you sound embarrassing or anything. <laughs> yeah. You already have tenure, right? So Your tenure, you're, you're safe. It's all good. <laughs> Academic freedom, baby. <laughs>